we are uh, truly blessed to have Kennedy in the house this morning, and we're going to get to hear his story. He's going to share with you uh, his uh, background and how God has been at work in his life for many years now. He grew up in Kenya, and so I'll let him tell you all the details of that. But uh, we've been talking about the Ministry of Compassion International here for several weeks now, and Kennedy's life was impacted and transformed by the work of compassion in Kenya. And so I know sometimes when we think about ministries, whether they're local or global, there's always that question of, is this ministry actually doing what they say they're doing, or is it having the impact that they say they're having? And so Kennedy is a, a living, breathing example of, of not only God's grace, but, but the impact that Compassion International can have. And so we are just so glad you're here, Kennedy. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to get to hear from this wonderful man. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we once again turn to you and say thank you. Thank you for your grace and your love and your kindness towards us. Thank you for the gift of another morning together here on Sunday to worship you. Thank you for our brother Kennedy. Thank you for your work in his life. Thank you that he was willing to, to travel, to, to come here and be with us in person this morning and share his story and share your work in his life, God. So we praise you for him. We thank you for him. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would fill him and speak through him to us today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Right. Amen. Good morning. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Amen. Like you heard, my name is Kennedy Crazy, and I am from the continent of Africa, one country called Kenya. The of Africa, Kenya. You guys get it? <laughs> the reason I say that is because so many times people walk up to me and they're like, Hey, Kennedy, you from Africa? I have a friend from Africa called John. Do you know him? <laughs> Don't be that guy. <laughs> from just one country. I was born and raised in the capital of Kenya <clears throat> called Nairobi. And Nairobi hosts eight slums. In fact, the largest slum in Africa is in Nairobi. Nairobi has about five million people, I think. That's like, I think that's the, last, the latest they have uh, from the census. I was born in the second largest slum in Nairobi called Madare. Madare, in literal terms, means the struggle, the fight, to scramble, to, to try to fit, to try to grab everything. Like if I had one treasure and I threw it, I wanted it. Everybody get it? That's what Madhari in literal terms means. Madhari is not a place you're proud to say you're from. In fact, if I was in Kenya today and I said I'm from Madhari in front of people, they'd probably walk out. Or everybody would be looking at their wallets, checking if their wallets are still in their pockets. Because people from Madara believe to be thugs, criminals. Nobody wants you around, around them if you're from Madara. Madara is about eight square miles, hosting almost a million people. It is super congested. Homes are made of dirt, tin roof, 
takes. A typical home has about five kids and two parents. Living in a 10 by 10 square foot room. My hotel. Like I said, in Madare, a family is five kids, two parents. Luckily or unluckily, my parents were a little extra hard workers and they got themselves. <laughs> I am baby number 10 of 10. I was telling somebody yesterday that I'm baby number 10 and I'm in my 30s. My oldest brother is the same age as my wife's parents. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Madare is a place of hopelessness. Nobody cares for you if you're from Madare. Nobody wants you around. In fact, we are told that when you're born in Madare, your life is pre-scripted. A typical boy can only live up to 16 years before they die. When you're 10, 11, you start engaging in the wrong things, you're probably a criminal, you get shot, you're done. Probably into drugs. By the time you're eight, you're already exposed to a, the hardest drugs you can think of. I remember my mom would always say that when I was born, I didn't open my eyes for a few days, and the first time I opened my eyes, the first, time, the first thing I saw was poverty. And she always apologized for that. I don't know why, but... Madare is a place of extreme, extreme poverty. Girls become moms at the age of 13. If they make it to 26, they're grandparents. If they make it to 39, they're grandparents. If they make it to 52, they're And that's what comes all together and builds the cycle of poverty. I come grew up in a 10 by 10 square foot home. Going a week without a single meal was just normal. The closest school that my parents could afford was two hours walk away from home. And that was bare feet. I walked two hours to school, bare feet, and two hours home, bare feet. Sometimes not even having a single meal for a week. I have to go to school, pay attention in class, and get good grades. Because if I don't get good grades, then my dad is going to be mad too. And that was okay. That was normal. Everybody thought that, was just, that wasn't just my story. That was the story of the, every other kid in my classroom. We were so poor that even poor people called us poor. That's how poor we were. I didn't have a backpack to carry my books to school. I used a grocery bag. I put my hands in the and I had a backpack. Being the baby of 10, I never had new clothes. All my clothes were handed me down from my older siblings. And I always told myself that one day when I grow up, 
I'll be able to buy myself shoes. And I grew up to love shoes. I love shoes. It's almost a problem. I'm a shoe fetish. I love shoes way too much. Because <laughs> it's the one thing that I wished I had. Most of the people around me had really good shoes. I played soccer bare feet, walked bare feet. I had the toughest feet you could ever think of. I played soccer with people who had shoes, and when I hit them, they would notice I hit them. And <laughs> I hit them. It felt painful than them with shoes. Like I said, this wasn't just my story. That was the story of so many other kids around me. Though I didn't have most of the things I needed, I was still an intelligent kid. I performed excellently in class. I was always a 4.0 GPA student. It was always 4.0 or 4.0. There was no 3.9 for me. So the only way I had lunch at school was if I, I used to do people's homework for them, and then they would give me their lunch. I was a businessman at a really young age. <laughs> and that was just trying to survive. Sometimes I'd just take an empty grocery bag to school for lunch. So when everybody else has lunch, I would have them give me a scoop of their meal, of their lunch each. And then I had lunch, a mixture of every meal. That and I had, that was, again, that wasn't just me. That was the story of so many other kids. It wasn't until when I was seven years of age when compassion came to my life through my local church. And I can say, I was seven years. I was nine years away from living my lifespan. I was nine years, I had already lived. And at this point, death was arrested and my life began. Through compassion, I had my first sponsor. She was in college. And my life changed. I was the happiest. I, I was walking differently. She sponsored me for one and a half years, and then she couldn't do it anymore. And then another family who then lived in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska, came into my life. And they picked me up out of a packet, just like what you saw coming in. And they thought I was cute. <laughs> <laughs> and they picked me up and prayed, of, prayed for me. They always say they had a picture of me on their refrigerator. They said every time they'd open their refrigerator, they would think of me and hope that I ate and pray that God provided for me. They wrote me letters and told me I was cute and I had a cute smile. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> <laughs> they loved me. 
They cared for me. They mentored me. They empowered me. And they were the first people to tell me the, I call them the three magical words. They were the first people to ever tell me, I love you. I know it's pretty normal here in the United States to say, I love you after every phone call. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Where I'm from, you can live and die without ever hearing I love you, even from your parents. The first time I told my mom I love you was nine years ago. And she didn't know what to do with that kind of information. <laughs> and that was the first time I gave my mom a hug. It was a very awkward hug, too. She didn't know what to do with that. And I know my parents love me. They've always provided for me. They've shown me love. But they've never told, they never told me that they loved me. They were just so busy trying to give me a survival that there was no time for my dad to say, I love you. I'm proud of you. I've never heard that from my dad. I know he's proud of me. I know. He just doesn't say it. You know, the only way I know that he's proud of me is I hear, it from, I hear him tell his friends. <laughs> I hear him brag about me to his friends. Or his friends tell me, your dad was saying this about you. I'm like, oh, nice. But he never tells me that. <laughs> but my sponsors told me constantly. They loved me. They prayed for me. They cared for me. And they told me God had a good plan for my life. In most of their letters, they always wrote Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Not says poverty. Not says everything I didn't have. Not says the script that the society had over my life. Not says anyone else. But says the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I tell you, for the first time, I started believing there was a future and a hope for me. For the first time, I had positive things about me. For the first time, I was told that Jesus loved me. I was introduced to Jesus. We came from not eating a week, five days a week, to eating at least four days Four times every day. Of all the things I went through growing up in extreme poverty, I can tell you not having food sucks. It makes your mind go crazy. It makes you think of the worst things you can ever think of. It makes you a weird guy. But we ate every day, four times. The two hours walk didn't feel like a two hours walk anymore because I had energy to walk. For the first time, I wore my first pair of shoes at the age of seven. In fact, the first day when I, when I got the shoes, I didn't even wear them. <laughs> I put them in my grocery and walked bare feet to school until I got to the school gate. That's when I put them on. That day, I was kicking rocks in the school. I was hitting everything so people could notice I had shoes. <laughs> it was the best feeling ever. Like I said, I, I love shoes. For that reason, I love shoes way too much. My birthday is coming up, so just in case 
You know what to get me. <laughs> I was in school all the time. I had a brand new school uniform. I got my first new backpack. I tell you, we were poor. That even poor people called us poor. That's how poor we were. Being in school all the time, tuition paid for. I didn't have to worry about coming back home to a room full of drunkards. My mom brew illegal. 120%. If you put a light on, get a cut, you can dump some of it on your wound. So it's for real. For the first time, I didn't have to come back home to sit with and hang out with people who are drinking or wait until they're drunk, they're finished drinking so I can sleep. There was a safe place for me at the Compassion Center. There was a library with electricity and a tutor in there who would help us really well in school. At the age of 14, I almost lost my eyesight. I had an eye infection that they said was hereditary. And in my dad's side of the family, there was people who'd lost their eyesight. My eyes were brown like coffee. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see Were it not for the fact that I was enrolled in the compassion program, my parents would be fighting whether they were going to feed the rest of the family or pay for my medical bills. But thanks to my sponsors, they paid for my medical bills. They loved me. They cared for me. I had my eyes fixed. And God healed me. Two months ago, I just checked my eyesight, and now I have a vision 20 out of 20. So if you've never seen a miracle, there's one standing in front of you today. That's miracle number one. I cleared elementary school, went to a high school. And I went to a government high school. People from the slum never made it to a government high school. Government high schools were for the rich people. The only way you could go to a government high school is if your dad knew somebody, or if you had really good grades that nobody could ignore the fact that you have good grades. My dad never knew any rich person. But I had good grades, so I went to a government high school. I was enrolled in a government high school. And it was news everywhere. Everybody talked about my family. Did you hear that? His son is in a government high school. It was like, it was a big deal. My sponsors told me that if I, had, if I got good grades in high school, they were going to pay for my university. I can tell you, in high school, I worked hard not to please myself, 
or make my parents proud, I was doing it for my sponsors. They believed in me way too much. That was the only reason I worked hard. I didn't want to let them down. And so they encouraged me, kept encouraging me through their letters, loved me, kept reminding me that God had a good plan for me, that I was destined for greatness, that God had a good purpose over my life, telling me to keep working hard, always. I was always looking forward to their letters because that was the only one time you'd hear something positive about yourself. It was the only one time throughout your life where you hear God loves you. We went to the Compassion Center every Saturday and we had a special meal of the week with meat once a week. Rice and beans and meat. We called it the mountain of rice and beans on a plate. I tell you, we were little kids, but we moved those mountains. <laughs> it was the one day of the week you look forward to. Saturday was the best day. They loved us there. We felt safe. They taught us about Jesus. They taught us skills and trades. Just in case education didn't work, you had something else that you could do. Being at the Compassion Center was that, the one, that, that was the best thing. If your parents knew you were at the Compassion Center, they felt relieved. Because boys didn't make it. Every time they'd call just, or, or send some of my siblings to find out where I'm at, if they found out I was in the Compassion Center, they were, thank God. Remember this one Saturday, two months before I did my finals in high school, and something crazy happened. I was just from moving the mountains and I was going home. And I saw from a distance smoke. And the culture in the slums is if you see smoke, it's time for you to stop everything you're doing and run towards the smoke. Means there's homes on fire. And we don't have a good system where you can call 911 and the fire department will show up in two minutes. Everybody is a self made fire, firefighter there. So everybody runs towards the smoke to go help save property. And I did what the culture states. And the closer I got, looked like it was closer to our, our, our neighborhood. The closer I got to the neighborhood, it looked like it was around where I lived. Unfortunately, when I got there, our home was one of 400 homes that had caught fire. And we'd lost everything. When I say everything, it might sound like we had too much. But the little that we had, we lost it. And it was the one and only time I've ever seen my dad cry. It was the only time I've ever seen my dad broken. Same dad who would always look back, even after four days of not having a single meal,
He passed out. Thank you. <laughs> the German <laughs> And that was so hard. As a young teenager, young man trying to learn how to be a man from my dad, trying to learn how to be a strong man from my dad, and then seeing him broken, that was so hard on me. And I was so mad. And I was so sad. And I felt disappointed. And I felt that, like God just let us be. So I decided to turn away from God, just be a normal hood kid. I decided to start hanging out with the wrong people, the wrong parts of the slum. I started staying in very risky places where even my dad wouldn't come and get me there because it's risky. He might never make it in there. I didn't show up to the Compassion Center. I didn't even go to school. I was so scared that since we lost everything, two months before I did my finals in high school, when I need books the, mo the most, I lost them. I didn't have documents. I didn't have clothes. I was just me with the clothes on my back. I was scared that I was going to come back in the cycle of poverty. I was scared that I was never going to make it out of poverty. I was scared that I wasn't going to get good grades. It didn't take long before the compassion staff realized that I wasn't showing up. I tell you, these people are like family to us. We call them uncles and aunties. They cared for us, and everything they told us kind of worked. We believed in everything they said. If they told you, do this, and you follow it through, you ended up with a good product. You ended up being a good person, successful. And we loved and respected these people. They were our mentors, the compassion had provided for us. We started looking, asking around where I could be. And one of the compassion staff, his name is Uncle George, he came to where I was at and found me. The one of the riskiest place where my father couldn't even try coming. He came there, picked me up, took me to his office, and gave me a cup of tea. And we had a conversation. And he asked me what's up, and I told him everything. And guess what he reminded me? He reminded me of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. The same verse that my sponsors preached over and over and over to me. I tell you, that was the verse that saved my life. He told me to give God another chance, and God was going to do wonders with my life. Because he had good plans for me. I tell you, I rededicated my life to Christ in his office. I'm not quite sure if I rededicated my life to Christ because it was a good idea, or I think I just did it because Uncle George said it. 
and we believe in everything they said. No regrets on that. I tell you, my life has never been the same since that day. Two months later, I do my finals successfully. My sponsor helped us build another house. He got, got me new clothing. I was, I was, I was back on, on my feet. Two months after the finals, the results are out. And I got the good grades. I qualified to go to the university. And I was so happy and ready to be the first person in my family's history to go to a university. That was a big deal. Everybody knew it again. Everybody knew that family, they have a guy who's qualified to go to the university. It was news. Everybody wanted to be me. Everybody looked up to me. But as I said, I'm the 10th child in my family. By the time I cleared high school, my parents had, had reached their retirement age. And so they retired. And the culture in Kenya is when the parents retire, the boys of the family have to take care of them. We don't have nursing homes in Kenya. So they go back to the ancestral land. You have to build them a home there and feed them and pay for their, all their bills. By that time, there was only three boys left in my family. We had six boys and four girls. All the girls were married, and three of my brothers had passed away. So there was only three of us. And so I had a choice to either go to school or take care of my parents, which was more immediate, which was a more needed need than anything else. And so I lost my chance to go to the university in Kenya. And I had a job to take care of my parents. I was employed for one month. I didn't enjoy it. But I still had to take care of my parents. So I remembered that in Compassion we were taught life skills and trades. And anybody had a choice to choose whatever they wanted. I had chosen music as a skill. They taught us how to play the guitar and sing. And I used to sing in, in the Saturday, we call them the Saturday clubs, where we would all come together. I was singing in the church, local churches, crusades, events, concerts. In the process of that, I met somebody who owned a record label in Kenya. And he liked me, and he called me to his office and signed me to his record label. And I toured the country. I went to like 4,000 high schools every year. I did music videos. I was on TV and radios doing interviews. My story was on the newspapers. And for the first time, there was a, at least a story that is positive about Madare. For the first time, there was a Jesus to my story. Before that, he was just another Madare, poor, hopeless kid. 
But at this point, he was that guy from Madare who Jesus saved. Amen? In the process of that, I moved out of the slum. I lived in a good apartment that had a bathroom in it. A bathroom was like five steps away from me. A bathroom I could flush. A bathroom I could sit on. In fact, the first day I, I experienced a toilet. I did not sit on it. I stood on it. I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody gave me some orientation and told me, oh, this is a toilet. This is, you're supposed to sit on it. I just stood on it. <laughs> and life changed. At the age of 20, I wrote my sponsor a letter and told him, thank you. I feel like I'm man enough now to take care of myself. Thank you for everything. Thank you for empowering me. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 has happened. I was able to take my family out of the slum together with my brothers. We did it. And now none of them can be considered poor at all. All of us are free from poverty in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Not just free from poverty, but free from poverty in Jesus' name. By me being in compassion, being sponsored in compassion, my brother who was a gangster would walk me to church and that's how our pastor started talking to him and he received Jesus in the process and he was changed and he was able to go back and preach to his fellow colleagues and they got to know about Jesus. Now, I live in Colorado. I am married and I have two kids. That's my family up there. My son will be six in April and my daughter will be four in May. Son is Gabriel and my daughter's name is Malkia, which means queen in Swahili. And I can say that I am a living testimony of somebody who was not born free, but now is free from poverty in Jesus' name. I have a degree in business administration. And above all, I have Jesus. Amen? I moved to the United States over six years ago. And I kept in touch with my sponsor. We always talk. I found him on Facebook. <laughs> I was able to look all the names, all the Daryls, and I found some of the pictures that he'd sent me on Facebook. So I knew that was him. And we've, kept, we've always kept in touch. When they sponsored me, they didn't have kids. Now they have a 14-year-old son and a 12-year-old son. We are still best of friends. They used to write me letters and drawings, and we just grew up to know each other. And three and a half years ago, he retired from the Air Force. He was a lieutenant colonel 
who was in charge of a, a base in Florida then. And I watched his retirement ceremony, and I watched his last speech. And when he received his document, retirement document, I felt like somebody needed to step in his shoes and fill his shoes. I can tell you for sure, if there's one thing I wanted all my life was to be just like my sponsor. I wish I had a picture of him to show. You would see how we, look, we even look alike almost. <laughs> <laughs> I, same day, walked into a recruiter's office and enlisted in the United States Army. I am now a trained engineer. And I'm part of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And I love God, love my family, love the country. I serve God, serve my family, serve the country, just like my sponsor did. Full circle right there. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. My family, we sponsor one girl with compassion as well. Her name is Laureen. She's nine years. She's from the same slum I grew up in, same neighborhood, same church. I had a chance to meet her two years ago when I visited back home. We were in their house, and we couldn't even fit there, in there, the four of us, with her mom and her. We couldn't fit, and memories just came. Like, how did we even fit in a, such a small home, ten of us? But I told her, I was here just like you, and I am not here. Your story is going to change. I can't wait to see her free from poverty in Jesus' name. I can't wait to see her grow to become what God intends her to be. I can't wait to see a finished product of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, over her life. I can't wait to see her story change. See, when you sponsor a child with compassion, it's like the analogy of the pomegranate fruit. It is believed that the pomegranate fruit has about 600 to 1,300 seeds in it, one fruit. And if you take one of the seeds and plant it, it becomes a tree with hundreds of fruits with 600 to 1,300 seeds in it. And if you do the same thing with one seed, it becomes the same thing again. It is believed that this is one plant that will never go to there. Ages and ages, over and over. So when you sponsor a child with compassion, it's the same thing. So planting one seed becomes lots of impact. See, before Jesus died, he was talking to his disciples in Mark chapter 6. And he told them, Go ye to all of the world and make disciples of all nations. He'd lived 33 years preaching, and he knew his time was up, but the gospel wasn't going to end by him going to heaven. He had to reach you. And so he sent his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And those disciples would become disciples who would make disciples, who would become disciples, who would make disciples, who would become disciples and make disciples like me. So when you sponsor a child with compassion, you're not just meeting the needs of the kid, the basic needs of food, shelter, education, medical care. You're being a part of the Great Commission. 
You're doing exactly what Jesus sent disciples to do. You're continuing the gospel. Like I said, the best thing compassion ever gave me, I can say, is Jesus. There's some kind of freedom that I experience now that wouldn't happen if I didn't have Jesus. And so today you have a chance to make a disciple. You have a chance to be a part of the Great Commission. You have a chance to partner with your church, partner with the Togo, the village in Togo, and make disciples. Like, like Pastor Matt said, go. It's time to go and make disciples. It is time to go and partner with God and change the world. So today, we all have that chance to do that. For only $38 a month, I went to school every day. I was fed. I was empowered. And I was given Jesus for $38 a month. If I took my family to Starbucks once a day, we spent more than $38 once. But that's what gave me a life. Because somebody just like you sacrificed, listened, and heard a kid's cry and decided, you know what, I can deny myself one, two things and have this kid have a life. So I'm here today to basically welcome you to partner with compassion, partner with your church, and more so partner with God and make disciples of all nations. Amen? Today you have that chance. I know we only have like 10 packets left there. But you can still do it on, on, on the Compassion website. And we'll make disciples. And I can't wait for that one day in heaven where we'll be celebrating this day. Where all those kids will be running at us and giving us hugs. And Jesus will just be so proud of us. That we went to the world and did exactly what he wanted us to do. Amen? I'll pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, for, thank you for life. Thank you for coming to earth and accepting to be, to be, to be killed for us, accepting, accepting to be punished for us so that we may have a life. Thank you for preaching and bringing the gospel to us that we may give it to other people. And thank you for choosing us to use us to do that. God, I pray over First Baptist Church, everybody in here and not here, all the members of the church, God, just bless them. Just take good care of them. Just give them the courage to step up and go make disciples. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's thank Kennedy for sharing his story with us. <clears throat> and for fighting through the technical difficulties. You were a champ, so thanks. Uh, friends, we have an opportunity now to uh, respond. Before we respond through child sponsorship, 
we can respond by coming to the table together and celebrating communion. And we've heard Kennedy's story. We've heard of God's grace in his life, how Jesus has transformed his life. And the same God, the same Jesus that was at work in Kenya is at work here uh, in us today. We get to come forward and remember him through communion. So we'll, in just a minute, come forward as the music plays and take the bread and take the cup, which reminds us of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us on the cross to bring forgiveness of sins and, and new life to all who would trust in him. And so if you're here this morning, even if you're visiting, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward and participate with us. Again, the music is going to play right after uh, I pray, and we invite you to come forward at that time. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for our brother Kennedy and how you have transformed his life. You've released him from poverty through your grace and your power. God, we are so encouraged by his testimony and that he's here with us. And now, Jesus, we as your people come to the table to remember you, to remember your work on the cross, your death, and your resurrection for us. And so we thank you for dying for us, for forgiving us of our sins, for giving us a new life in your name. So we celebrate you and we thank you today by coming to the table. Jesus is in your name, we pray. Amen.